chapter 19, and I'd like to read a passage for you. Greg is uh, in a sermon series on parables, and I want to share a parable with you that uh, is meaningful to my heart, and I pray that what I share with you this morning will minister to you and to your heart as well. Luke 19, and I want to read for you uh, verses 11 through 27 of Luke 19. Luke 19, 11 through 27. This is what, uh, what the text says. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied, because you have been trustworthy in in a very small matter. Take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you were a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow. Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, Take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Man went to a doctor's office and when he walked into the doctor's office, the receptionist that greeted him said, "Uh, how can I help you? And the man said, well, um, I have shingles. And she said, okay. And she took his name down and filled out a bunch of information and said, please wait right there in the lobby. And uh, he did. He sat down and a few minutes later, a nurse's aide opened the door and said, uh, uh, called his name out and said, "Uh, how can we uh, help you? And he says, well, I have shingles. And she led him back to a room where, again, she took a little more information down, you know, it's just basic, and said, please wait right there, and sat down. A few minutes later, a nurse came in and said, uh, look at the chart, and said, I, I understand you have shingles. And he said, yes, I do. And with that, she took more medical information, took his blood pressure, gave him an electrocardiogram, and said, now take your clothes off, put the gown on, and the doctor will be with you in a second. Five minutes later, there was a knock at the door, and in walked the doctor, and the doctor said, uh, so uh, why are you here? And he said, I have shingles, and the doctor said, well, where are they? And he said, they're out on the pickup truck outside. Where do you want them? I share that story with you, and we chuckle over a story like that, but it's an appropriate story and very fitting for our text this morning. 
See, back in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, Luke records these words for us. He said, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Now, we who are reading that verse on this side of the cross understand what that verse means. We understand that Jesus was going to Jerusalem to die on a cross. The problem is, is the disciples didn't understand that verse. We know that he was going to Jerusalem to die because in Luke chapter 18, verses 31 through 33, he took his 12 closest companions aside and tried to, in an attempt to clear up any confusion there was, and told them these words. In Jerusalem, they will mock me. They will uh, insult me. They will spit on me. They will flog me. And then he made it as crystal clear, they will kill me, he said. And yet when you read the next verse, Luke 18, verse 34, it reads more like an Abbott and Costello who's on first routine. Because when you read that verse, you understand they had no idea why Jesus was going to Jerusalem. They thought Jerusalem was going to be a place where Jesus was going to begin his overthrow of Rome. And they weren't the only ones that were confused on why Jesus was going to to Jerusalem. The religious rulers of his day asked him in Luke chapter 17, Hey, when's the kingdom of God going to be restored? Translation, when are you going to overthrow those evil enemies of ours? And so Jesus, knowing that there was confusion as to why he was going to Jerusalem, tells a parable in Luke 19, the parable that we just read, in an attempt to clear up the air. He was going to Jerusalem to die, and he was not concerned about the date and the time of his second coming. He was more concerned about what his servants would do in his absence. In other words, when he was gone, Jesus was more concerned about would his followers buckle under the pressure, or would they live for him? Would his servants be loyal to him, or would they lose heart in his absence? And as I thought about that, I thought, how appropriate is that for us living in America? Because the truth of the matter is, there are many disciples today who are just as confused as the original 12 were back then. And yet the good news is, Jesus, by sharing this parable, clears away the confusion and shows us how you and I, how we should live in his absence until he returns. And that's what I would like to share with you this morning. I want to share with you three ways disciples should conduct their lives in Jesus' absence. Three ways disciples should conduct their lives in Jesus' absence. And the first is this. Until Jesus returns, a disciple's life should be characterized by faithful devotion. Faithful devotion. I think it is important right up front at the beginning of this message not to get blinded by all the details of the texts. In other words, I think that many times we can take this text and make all sorts of applications to the rewards, to the money, to the punishment, so forth and so on. And yet the big picture in this text is this. The servants were given a task to continue until Jesus returned, until the king returned. And that is the key in the passage. Two servants were faithful and one was disobedient. Two were rewarded, one was reprimanded for the specific purpose that he was not faithful. 
And Jesus is highlighting the simple truth that until he returns, he wants his servants, his disciples, his followers to do what? To live with faithful devotion for him until he returns. All of scripture clearly points out that while we have a short time on this earth, our lives are not to be focused necessarily on ourselves, but our lives are to be focused on those people hurting, the people around us that need help. We're to be focused on our creator who put us here to help those people. And yet that is a hard sell in the 21st century, is it not? Today, self-denial has become giving up sugar for Lent. (laughs) Taking up your cross really means letting Aunt Ethel stay for the holidays. It's a hard sell. In America, we would much rather prefer to be our own captain and our own Lord. And yet when you read through Scripture, many of the authors of Scripture understood that they weren't in charge of their own lives. It was the Apostle Paul who grasped probably better than anyone. He understood that it was Jesus who was his captain and his Lord. That's why he said in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15, these words, And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Now, what's important for us to remember when we read those words that Paul shared is this. In the first century, claiming Jesus as your captain or claiming Jesus as your Lord uh, meant trouble. In many cases, claiming Jesus as Lord brought certain death. And I find it so very interesting that it was Jesus himself who reserved some of his strongest comments for those who got it right in saying that they were faithfully devoted to him and calling him Lord, and yet whose hearts remain distant from him. That's why he said in Luke 6, 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? And it was the great R.C. Sproul in a book called The Quest for God who talked about the significance of a double address in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. He said that calling someone's name twice was a way of speaking forcefully. It was a way of speaking emotionally and even intimately. And so when you turn to the pages of scripture and you read in Genesis 22.11 when Abraham has a knife raised above his son's chest and is ready to plunge it down through his chest, it takes on a whole new meaning when you hear the words of the angel saying, Abraham, Abraham. Or when you turn to the book of Exodus and read in Exodus 3-4, God calling out to Moses, Moses, Moses. Or when Jesus cried from the cross in Matthew 27, verse 36, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or even Jesus himself when he calls out to the apostle Paul and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? In other words, my friends, if you really wanted to reach down into someone's soul, you called out their name twice. And it's against that background that Jesus says, how dare you call me Lord, Lord, implying that we are best friends when your own behavior of your own life tells another story. 
share something totally different. In other words, in the king's absence, remaining faithful, staying faithful, being devoted, it requires more than just a head nod. It requires action. I remember reading the story about Henry Thoreau, the 19th century New England nonconformist. He was thrown in jail once for not paying a tax, but the reason he refused to pay the tax is because he knew the tax went to support slavery, which he was against. One of his good friends, Ralph Waldo Emerson, realized that he was in jail and went to visit him. Emerson, peering through the iron bars, looked through and said, Henry, what are you doing in there? And Thoreau, unobturbed, un, you know, disrupted and, and unperturbed, shot back and said, No, Ralph, the question is, what are you doing out there? Anybody can say they're a Christian. As a matter of fact, most in society do. What Jesus is saying is simply this in this parable. If you're truly a follower of me, it will show in your life. We are not here to live for ourselves. We are here to live for the king. Our job is to faithfully share his word. Our responsibility is to remain devoted to him, following him no matter how hard it may become. Our task is to remain loyal to him regardless of the delay. And his disciples are to be about his business, not our business. And let's be honest, that's where we find true satisfaction, is it not? Serving our king? You want to know why so many people, so many Christians need counseling and people struggle with problems and difficulties seem to follow them? Because I believe they're trying to live in two worlds and serve two different kings. And it was Jesus who said in Matthew 6.24, it can't be done. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one or love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Many of you have probably heard of the man by the name of Paul Brand. Paul Brand was a brilliant doctor who dedicated his life to serving the poorest of poor in India. Philip Yancey, one of my favorite authors, mentions Dr. Paul Brand several times in many of his books for the sole purpose of Philip Yancey admires and uh, you know, loves Dr. Paul Brand more than any human he's ever met, he said. And yet as fascinating and as faithful as Paul Brand is, what is even more fascinating is the story of Evelyn, his mother. In 1909, Evelyn Brand received a call from God. She said God put a call on her heart to go to India. Now I remind you, in 1909, for a single woman, that took a truckload of faith and an equal amount of determination. And yet she went. And she met a man by the name of Jesse. And they ministered to the, again, the poorest of poor in, you know, the, the rural areas of, uh, of, of India. They went there, and for seven years they ministered without one single convert. Until a local tribal priest was sick and came down with an illness. And it was only Evelyn and Jesse. No one would take care of him but Evelyn and Jesse. And they ministered to him. And this local tribal priest basically said... Wow, this God, this Jesus must be true because only Evelyn and Jesse will look after me in my illness. And before he died, he gave Evelyn and Jesse and asked, would you please take care of my children? And they did. And that became a turning point, not only in their lives, but in their ministry. Because after that, that priest died, they, many people began to 
you know, to look at this person of Jesus. And many people started to come to faith in Jesus Christ. They ministered for 13 more years, many people coming to the Lord, and then Jesse died. Jesse died, and many people thought, well, you know, Evelyn's going to go back to, to England, to her hometown, but she was stubborn. She continued to minister for 20 more years by herself in India till she was 70 years old. When she turned 70, uh, her kept serving her you know, mission board faithfully. When she turned 70, she had received news that her mission board was not going to you know, renew her for another term. She was just getting a little bit too old. But she was stubborn. And what Evelyn had done is, in the times that she had been there, she put a little resources away each time, and she was able to build a meager shack, if you will. And with what money she had left over from building the shack, she bought a pony. A pony for the specific purpose of riding to village to village to tell people about the good news of Jesus Christ. 70-year-old woman. She did that until she was 75. At the age of 75, she fell and broke her hip. Her son, Dr. Paul Brand, came over and said, Mom, you've had a good run. It's time to turn over the reins, and it's time to come home. And this little sweet old lady, who was known far and wide as Granny Brand, said, No, son, I'm not. She continued to ride. Concussions, sicknesses, illnesses would not stop her. Finally, when she turned 93 years old, and she could no longer ride, on the back of a horse because of her age and her illnesses. Because she was so well-loved and known as Granny Bran, the men of the villages put her, made a stretcher and carried her around from village to village so she could preach the good news of Jesus Christ to people who were willing to listen. Granny Bran lived two more years after 93 till 95, and she gave those years of her life as a gift to God on a stretcher to help the poorest of poor. Now, I want to ask you a question. Is Granny Brand an aberration or is she someone just like us? See, I would suggest to you this morning that the way she lived her life could be done by anyone in this room. It simply takes followers of Christ who understand the implications of living a fully surrendered life. Disciples who faithfully devote themselves to, you know, to invest what God has blessed them with, with to bless others. So let me ask you, how will you live in the king's absence? How does it show in your life that you serve Jesus as your king? And the answer to that question, my friends, is important, especially in light of the second truth that this parable illuminates, and that's this. Until Jesus returns, a disciple's life should be lived with a sense of accountability. See, in verse 13, we are told the master gave uh, ten servants ten minus. And when the king came back into his kingdom, he called those servants in to give a report on what they had done with what they had been given. Now, we are only told about three in this parable because I believe that's all that we really need to get the point across. It's just simply three. And we read in the text that the first two servants brought in a significant return on the king's investment. The third servant had a much different story. He took his mina, he put it in a piece of cloth, and he hid it. And when the king had heard what the servant had done, he was, because he was afraid, the king couldn't believe what he was hearing. 
And the reason why the king was befuddled all had to do with the simple issue of the servant's unfaithfulness. That's why in verse 23, the king said those words, well, why didn't you at least take my money down to the bank and give it to them and it would have gained some interest if you really knew that I was a hard, harsh and hard man. Now, in this parable, the parable of the minas, a mina is definitely money. But I want you to understand that this parable can go well beyond just finances. Because a mina for you and for me could be a gift. It could be a talent. It could be uh, an, an ability. But make no mistake, the king expects you to use your mina until he returns. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to be a Mother Teresa or a Granny Bran giving your entire life to serving the poorest of poor in India. I love what Fred Craddock says about disciples and servants and serving. He said too many disciples today have this idea of discipleship being taking out of your pocket and slapping down a $1,000 bill on the table and saying, Here, God, I'm giving my all. I'm giving my all for, for you and for Jesus. He said... Really, what God would ask us to do is take the $1,000 down to the bank, cash the $1,000 in for quarters, and then go throughout your life placing 25 cents here and 50 cents there and 75 cents here. And I love that. You know why I love that? Because everyone in this room can do a 25-cent something for the Lord. Every one of us can do something. Everyone in this room this morning has the ability to share a kind word with someone else. There have been some mornings that I've wondered else why, <laughs> otherwise, but all of us can share a kind word. Everyone in this room has at least some resource that they can share with someone that's hurting. Everyone in here has some gift, ability, or talent that they can serve in some ministry. And remember, the important point of it is, is, God wants you to do what you can do and leave the results up to him. He will do the rest. But make no mistake, when he returns, there will be an accounting. Now, many people today scorn this idea of final judgment. Many people today believe we live, we die, and, well, that's it. That's all there is to it. And yet it was Paul who said in 2 Corinthians 5.10 these words, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That each one must receive the things due to him while done in the body, whether good or bad. And no matter how many people try to soften the language of the New Testament by taking judge out of judgment, what this parable reminds us of is this. There are real and eternal consequences for our life that we live right here, right now. Especially in relationship to what God has given to us. There will be an accounting, and there will be no excuses, just as there were no excuses in Luke 19, 11 through 27. Now, I'll be very transparent with you this morning, and I'll let my guard down, and I will tell you this. I am probably most challenged. My faith is most challenged when I'm behind the wheel of a car <laughs> that's behind another car with a man or a woman that has an impaired foot that can't press the gas pedal down and impaired arms that can't turn the steering wheel one way or the other to allow me to zoom past them, I'm getting frustrated right now. More than once I have been behind one of these cars and been frustrated and fuming. 
more than once I have missed an all-important green light because of one of these knuckleheads that have been in front of me. And more than once I have fumed and I have sent things. And I remember, it was a while ago, but I remember one time when this was happening to me and I was fuming and I thought to myself, I thought, Mike, boy, can't I at least be gracious for just five minutes? And no sooner than those words and those thoughts came out of my mind, my, immediately, my immediate next thought was, boy, I sure hope no one saw me act that way and display this kind of fuming behavior. And I kid you not, I had forgotten about my little girl in the back seat, Gabriella. She was just a baby. And I was fuming and I was saying that, boy, I hope no one saw me. And no sooner was that thought out of my mind, Gabby, who was in the back seat, popped her binky out of her mouth and said, Get moving, mister. Move that car. (laughs) And it was at that moment, it was at that moment that I realized that, you know, I might be able to fool others. I might even be able to fool myself from time to time. But I will never, ever be able to fool God. And neither will you. One day, Jesus will return. And it will either be a time of celebration because we faithfully used what he gave us to bless others. Or it will be a time of crisis because we just never got around to using what he placed in our hands to use for his kingdom. And which reminds me of a third point this parable points out. And that is this. Until Jesus returns, a disciple's life should be lived now in light of eternity. You know, about three years ago, I went through a very difficult time in my life. And it's interesting how troubles have a way of clarifying and concentrating your mind. In the midst of gut-wrenching pain, I realized how much of my life was focused on things that, well, really didn't matter. And in the midst of struggle, and in the midst of pain, and in the midst of turmoil, I I realized, you know, it really doesn't matter what kind of car I drive. It really doesn't matter how much money I have in the bank account. Through struggle, what became significant were questions. Questions like, what's really most important in my life? What am I living for? What kind of legacy am I going to leave? And to be honest with you, I think sometimes we get so involved in living, so consumed with making a living here and now, that we forget why we were put on this earth. I mean, honestly, I'll just be frank with you. You know, today, it it is hard to tell non-Christians from Christians apart. And if there's any truth that this parable is telling you and I this morning, it's this. It shouldn't be that way. It shouldn't be that way. Disciples of Jesus Christ should be living differently from them, from those around them. At least that's the way it was in the early church. What enabled the early church to do what they did was they, you know, lived effectively here because of their great belief and view of there. Verse 13, the king said, put this money to work until I come back. And that's the key, isn't it? It's been so long since he spoke those words, well, maybe he ain't coming back. He's delayed a long time, so, well, I guess I can just do what I need to do. And because of the delay, 
of the king being delayed, the priority of many of his followers have become clouded and confused. I mean, it's, it's not that we don't recognize that Jesus is king. It's not that we don't realize that, you know, the, the world is hurting and Jesus is Lord. We understand those things. It's just that we live as though none of it were really relevant today. Most Americans are affluent enough to buy what they want. Streets of gold may have been appealing at one time, but let's be honest, they're not the best pavement for a high-performed Porsche. (laughs) We get what we want. We buy what we want. And with confused priorities, what most disciples and servants, yes, Christians, what they fail to do is to deal with life's most greatest question. Living for what's most important. In other words, what are you doing now that will be important a hundred years from now? Let me give you a hint. It will have nothing to do with what you make. It will have nothing to do whether you traded up for that Lexus or the trip that you took to Europe. But it will have everything to do with relationships. Namely one, your relationship with the king. That's what's most important. And I think it is no mistake that in this parable, before this parable is told, the first ten verses leading up to this parable show us not only what is most important, but provide for you and for me an example of how we can live for what is most important. It is Jesus who's walking by a tree and sees a short little man by the name of Zacchaeus. Wealthy Zacchaeus, we are told. He was not only wealthy, we are told he is a man of short stature. But Jesus doesn't care about his physical height. Jesus cares more about his spiritual height. Zacchaeus, you see, had fallen short of measuring up to what God expected him to be. He, Zacchaeus, like many people today, had their priorities out of focus. He was devoted, all right, but his devotion was to collecting money. And because he was a man of authority, his accountability was skewed. And being wealthy, his focus on living was, well, let's go for the next collection. But with Jesus coming to town, everything changed. Everything. In a gush of honest repentance, it's old Zacchaeus who displays for everyone what faithful devotion, what accountability, and what living now in light of eternity is all about. The text tells us, that Zacchaeus gives back half of his possessions and pays back those he had harmed or hurt or stolen from fourfold. And it's Zacchaeus who illuminates for you and for I, I think, one of the most important passages in the New Testament. And it's Mark eight thirty six. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his very soul or his very life? See, I would propose to you today in answering my own question, what is most important? What is most important? I would say it's salvation and redeeming lives and repentance and helping others. Those are the things most important. And the reason why I say those things are most important for this reason, they were most important to Jesus. That's why verse 11, the beginning verse of our parable, when it says, while they were listening to this, listening to what? Listening to Jesus say, today salvation has come to this house. Listening to what? Listening to Jesus give his sole purpose for why he came. The Son of Man came to seek and to save those that were lost. 
The disciples and many that followed Jesus, their minds were focused on an earthly ministry, an earthly kingdom. And it's Jesus who quickly directs their attention to a parable that highlights what's most important. What is it? Faithful living now while he's gone. Living with a sense of, a, uh, of accountability until he returns. And living now for what's most important, eternity, salvation. So let me ask you, are you living a faithful life? Are you faithfully devoted to Jesus? Remember, my friends, those people in life, I believe, who who achieve the most, those people in this life who achieve the most, in most instances, are probably not those who are the most gifted, but those who recognize their talent enough to celebrate it to discover it, and then to put it into practice. And what this parable reminds me of is next to rejecting Jesus Christ, no doubt the worst sin that you and I can commit is to waste our life. Are you living with a sense of accountability? Just as each worker in this parable was equally endowed, don't forget, so are you. So are you. Everyone in this room has a talent, a gift, and an ability, but also don't forget a talent, gift, and ability also also equals responsibility. God expects you to use what you have been given. He has given all of us something to use until he returns. The king is in a distant country, and even though his return seems protracted, trust me, it is not postponed. And last, are you living now in light of eternity? C.S. Lewis once said it this way, the Christians who did the most for this present world were exactly those who thought the most of the next. And if you answered, my friends, any one of those questions in a way like Zacchaeus that falls short of God's standard, then follow Zacchaeus' example. Do what needs to be done. Repent if necessary. Change your ways. And allow what Jesus said of him to be said of you today. Today, salvation has come to this house. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are blessed and we are thankful for your love and your mercy. Father, I pray that today the words that were shared and spoken, I pray that, Lord, that you are speaking to hearts and to minds today. Father, help us as your followers to live lives worthy of the call that you have placed before us. Help us to live our lives with faithful devotion, remembering that you will return. And help us, Father, when we get confused and our priorities become clouded, to remember that this is not our home, that you have a place prepared for us, and we will worship you there for an eternity. I love you, Jesus. And I pray that you would watch over each and every one of us. Speak to our hearts this morning. In your precious and holy and powerful name we pray. Amen. Well, maybe there's someone here today that needs to make a decision. Maybe there's someone here today that needs to step forward. We're going to have an invitation.
And maybe today is a day that someone needs to step forward and say, I need to change my ways. Maybe you've accepted Christ a long time ago. Maybe today is a day of not a new beginning, but maybe today is a day of rededication, of saying, I'm going to begin now living faithfully for you, living with a sense of accountability and living for really what's most important. Whatever God's placed upon your heart, if you have a decision to make this morning as we sing the song, if you would, please come forward. Let's stand.